0: Thank you, Amy. Sand left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. I hope that your heart is prepared for the word today. Thank you, Alex, for leading us in worship and for worshiping and giving. Before we dig into the word this morning, I'd like to invite you, if you've got children up through grade four and you'd like them to be in children's church this morning, you are welcome to follow the herd out the door. And your teachers will meet you there in the foyer. Pick your children up at the end of the service, though, please. That's our only request, so that our folks can go home. The rest of you, if you would, turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13, a teaching time today. We're going to preserve our time by turning straight to our verses under our consideration. That's starting at verse 8 of chapter 13. We're teaching from... A New American Standard today, and that is my habit to do that. You can find copies of that in the seat in front of you, uh, or use the copy of God's Word you have. I'll give you verse cues, and we can just stay together, and you'll be enriched in your understanding. There are also notes on the back fold of your bulletin, and you're welcome to get up and get one if you don't have one, or turn there if that's helpful for you for some takeaway today. And you'll find it on the screen behind me. Those things will be underlined to give you a cue where we are. So to preserve our time, if you would, 1 Corinthians 13, we're going to begin in verse 8 and read through verse 13. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. Verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Verse 11. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. Verse, last part of that verse, when I became a man, I did away with childish things. Verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Verse 13, but now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. As we get to the end of this amazing chapter, Paul turns his attention back to the use of spiritual gifts and the reason why he had addressed them to begin with, which was the tendency of the Corinthian church to make a big deal out of the showy gifts. So he does some comparison then as he gets right here to the end of this chapter between the gifts of the Spirit and love. Love. And really the big picture is this, as we look at these last six verses, gifts are transitory, love never ends. It really is the point I think he's trying to make overall. The importance of love is that important, basically, as he gets to the end and begins to talk about some of these gifts that will come to an end. He just wants them to make sure love never ends. But gifts, whatever they are, at whatever level they are, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 and 2, They are just transitory. They are temporary, and love is forever. So if you're going to be concerned, then really, I think this is the emphasis. If you're going to be concerned about something, then be concerned about what never ends, which is this fruit of the Spirit called love. And that basis, that foundation, is the basis for any use of the gifts and any ministry in the church, and any ministry, really, that builds with gold, silver, and costly stone. And so we've tied all that together, so I don't want to go back over that. But that is a very important emphasis that Paul has. Now, there are some... There are some supplemental emphasis here that I think are very important. We're going to look at those today. And again, um, today will be like last week, a little bit of a different feel of the ministry, more of a teaching or a doctrine, if you will, which is that word in Scripture, as opposed to an exhortation or or, um, reproof, correction, instruction, all the things that go into the teaching of the Word. So once again, it will be more of a teaching time that will help you, I think, have a very firm foundation on your understanding of these gifts. Look at the first part of verse 8. It says, Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. Now, the first part is the key, really, to understanding all six verses. It has to do with becoming inadequate to the task. Love never fails. Uh, Love never becomes inadequate to the task. Or from the positive, love will always be sufficient in every age, in every situation. And so we understand that regardless of where we are in the church age or perhaps in the thousand-year reign or in the eternal state, love will always be sufficient. It will be good for every situation. And so the idea is Paul sets this sufficiency of love up against everything else as the standard, really, um, for longevity. And So over and against the impermanence and the insufficiency of the other gifts, then, which is really implied at that point, uh, we see with the verb will be done away. So... Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, we see they will be done away. Now, we saw last last time the tense voice and mood indicate that something will come and cause the spiritual gift of prophecy to stop. And again, uh, the comparison is to love, which will not stop and it won't come to an end. So, But he says prophecy will come to an end. Prophecy is not eternal. And as we understand prophecy, prophecy is a passing on or reiterating the words of God. Uh, it literally means to foretell. And so... Uh, This last part of verse 8, we see the same verb construction again in the passage. So he says, love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. And then skip to the last part of verse 8. It says, if there are knowledge, if there is knowledge, it will be done away. So love is permanent, but prophecy and knowledge are not permanent. Even though they've been very important in the church, and they've encouraged the church, continue to encourage the church, and teach the church and bring it along, along with some of the other permanent edifying gifts. Again, this verb form means, again, same words in the English, so we see the translation is consistent Uh, Something will come along and cause the spiritual gift of knowledge, as well as prophecy, to stop. So knowledge, the spiritual gift given to a believer so that they may understand the facts of Scripture, and then, of course, know the truths of Scripture, the ability to articulate that clearly. That's going to, something's going to come along and cause those to come to an end. Both of these are, as we've seen in the past, speaking gifts. They're permanent edifying gifts, uh, as we saw. Permanent in that, as we understand these passages of Scripture, permanent in that that they continued after the first century. Obviously, from Paul's words here, they will be brought to a close as well. But as we kind of classified the types of gifts, we see that they were permanent edifying gifts that continued on. Now, as we look at that middle phrase of verse 8, it's different, and, and that's important. And why it was important, we looked at last time. Uh, love is eternal, and prophecy and knowledge have an incoming, but not yet, because it's still future there as Paul expresses it to the Corinthian church. So if they're tongues, it says they will cease. Now again, love's permanent, but tongues are not permanent. And tongues, of course, the language or dialect used by a particular or distinct group of people uh, apart from other nations. So each nation's tongues, we see that uh, that word used uh, in other places, which is uh, just referring to the very different uh, language groups that are across the world. So this is a true spiritual gift of the ability to speak a known foreign language unknown to the speaker, But known to the hearer, and then, of course, the corresponding gift to another group of believers of translation without prior study. So, we see tongues, and then Paul says, we'll cease, and that's future middle indicative. So, we saw, just that just indicates, that instead of something coming along in the future and putting an end to the spiritual gift of tongues, tongues ends, it says, on its own. Now, it's in the future, so it's still to come, as we think about the context here, it's still to come as Paul's teaching the Corinthian church. And the middle voice, which just means the subject will bring an end to itself. So it's reflexive. Tongues will stop on their own. Nothing comes along and stops tongues. They're going to cease. And then the mood indicative just means that this is going to be the actual reality of that future date. Okay? So, that's obvious here then. And important to point out that Paul doesn't mention tongues again until chapter 14. And it appears that the reason that is, is because they're going to cease on their own. They're just going to stop. And we looked at some of that background here last time, and I won't go back over that, just direct you to last week's sermon online, and you can kind of catch up with some of that background material that we did, that we went through. But as we saw, 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11 help us kind of classify the gifts as a whole. 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11 classify the gifts into spiritual gifts into two categories. They classify them as speaking gifts, and they classify them in serving gifts. And so the gifts can be categorized then further, as we saw last week, temporary gifts, or we can also call them sign gifts and permanent gifts, and of course that's qualified. That permanence is qualified by uh, what we see here in First Corinthians thirteen, verse eight. So to put that together, then, as we focus on the cessation of the tongues in uh, cessation of tongues in our passage this morning, then temporary or sign gifts are gifts that were given to confirm the testimony of the apostles and the prophets, and as a sign, an indictment, if you will. When we say sign, it's an indictment to the Jews. So these gifts are referred to as temporary, as such, and we saw this last time, uh, they were prevalent in the early church, but ceased to be evident as the church became established. They're also referred to as sign gifts, and it just as they were visible signs that had been prophesied in the past that would reveal the Jewish rejection of the Messiah. So once they rejected the Messiah, these gifts became very prominent. The Jews would hear from other tongues, other languages, this gospel. So it's a sign to the Jews. They were visible verifications. they attested to the salvation of the Gentiles, and confirm their acceptance into the church. So, very important applications for these sign gifts. Now, temporary sign gifts would have included healings and miracles, tongues, and the interpretation of tongues. Now, we won't go back through all of this background stuff we looked at last time, but the question we asked concerning the cessation of temporary sign gifts were these Is it possible that the original reason for the temporary sign gift no longer exists today? We asked that question last time. And I believe that we we're able to see from the Scriptures that the answer to that is yes. And then number two, can it be shown that the way the temporary sign gifts seem to function today doesn't match the way these gifts function in the first century church? And again, as we looked through a, a number of Scriptures last time, I believe that we we're able to see from the Scriptures the answer to that is also yes. So, as we have that very, very firm understanding of how the sign gifts worked, the temporary sign gifts worked, and, and why they were given, and the Scriptures kind of back that up, There's another reason why we teach that sign gifts ended with the first century. And that has to do with Paul's interesting wording here in 1 Corinthians 13.8. The tongues would end on its own. Now, we noted last time that he doesn't mention tongues again in chapter 13, but only talks about prophecy and knowledge. So there's a lot of speculation on the approach Paul took here, and that it wasn't just accidental. There's no words that are accidental here in the Scriptures that we can just say, well, that doesn't really mean anything. And so there's speculation there as if that ending were already beginning or would be happening very soon, which is why Paul used the words that he used. Now, as we mentioned last time, that view can be supported by the topics Paul addresses in his later writings. And I want, to guess, I want you to see this briefly, um, because it is so important to really sound doctrine for the church, and uh, there's so much confusion in the modern church today about sign gifts and whether they're still functioning today. So I want you, again, just kind of build on what we understand about particularly the two questions uh, about temporary sign gifts, and why they were given and all of that kind of stuff. And then on top of that, really, this this very important wording that Paul has here. And we talked about this last time, but I'll go into it now this morning. Now, as we look at this, remember, as Paul writes these words, Paul isn't down on spiritual gifts. And he isn't down on on sign gifts, particularly. Nobody was more charismatic than the Apostle Paul. And I say that to say that he wrote in the Corinthian church that they, they, as we saw in verse, 1 Corinthians 1, 7, they came behind no other church when it came to the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Actually, he says that to them. You come behind in no gift, which means that no church had more of the gifts of the Holy Spirit than the Corinthian church did. So they were manifesting a full range of, of the spiritual gifts. Paul says you don't come behind anyone in the gifts. And then he says these very important words. They're pretty remarkable, really, as we think about it in um, in First Corinthians chapter 14, verse 18, he says, and I thank God, he says, I speak in tongues more than you all. So as he addresses this, the tongues are going to come to an end, they're going to cease on their own. Of course, you may have some people resisting that in the church, because that was a very important gift, and it was very prominent, and, and people would look at you, and it was one of those upfront kinds of things, and draws attention to yourself, and seems very spiritual. And so Paul addresses this whole thing as he begins this whole section in chapter 12, with just, you know... Some people are coming to him and saying, hey, you know, something's going on in the church. Is this spiritual, And uh, or could we consider these people to be spiritual? And so he gives them some qualifications as to what's supposed to be going on. And then he comes here to this part of the passage, and he says "They're gonna tongues are going to cease on their own. The thing that the Corinthian church thought was so important, and we're going to see in chapter 14, that Paul has to address very clearly. And he just says, look, they're going to cease on their own. And he goes on then to speak about prophecy and knowledge, but he doesn't speak about tongues anymore. And so... He says in 1 Corinthians 14, 18, look, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all, and the church doesn't come behind, he said, in any spiritual gift. And so just as a footnote, the question comes up, so, well, we don't have any record of Paul you know, speaking in tongues. It doesn't say, well, Paul just started speaking in tongues, and, and and you know, other than just a few places it's perhaps implied. So where did Paul do all the speaking in tongues? And just as a footnote, the short answer is this. As you look through the New Testament, the examples of the manifestations of tongues are public. Okay? So you look through the New Testament, you see the examples of tongues are public. So obviously, the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, uh, in the home of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, uh, where many were assembled, we see in or around the synagogue at Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, and then you see it here in Corinth. And those are basic your example, basically your examples of the manifestation of the gift of tongues in the New Testament. All Public places, all publicly going on. Certainly, as we see in Pentecost, that was very public. But in the home of Cornelius, many people there, many people witnessed what was going on. And it was told, again, numerous times uh, to verify that the Gentiles were coming to faith. And then we saw in the synagogue in Ephesus in Acts 19, and then here in Corinth. So these are the four places where we can go to the New Testament and see where the gift of tongues was said to have been exercised. And so then the question is, so where did Paul... Where did Paul speak in tongues? And it appears that the best situation that fits the facts would be Paul in the synagogues. I think that's really the only situation that fulfills the biblical requirements for the gift of tongues. So one that would have allowed the apostle to exercise his ability in this area. It would be then when he went to the Jewish synagogue because there was always the opportunity made available, as you read through the Acts particularly, but always opportunity made to, available for those who were visiting to speak. And remember, Paul got that opportunity numerous times. Brothers, if you have anything to say, go ahead and say it now. We saw that in Corinth. We saw it in Ephesus. A number of places where Paul goes to the synagogue and those who lead the synagogues notice Paul's there, said if you have any exhortation to the church or to the synagogue now, go ahead and do it. And so Paul would have that opportunity to speak. And it would be people from... Uh, numerous nations coming who perhaps as their as their heart language would be a different heart language. And so I, I, I don't think that um, we can be categorical at this point, but I think that as we look at 1 Corinthians 14, 21 and 22, Paul gives direction to the church on the use of tongues. And he says this, he says, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I'll speak to the people, even so they'll not listen to me, says the Lord. So then, verse 22 Tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers, so, uh, but prophecy is a sign, not to unbelievers, but those who believe. So Paul gives this information, and we're going to look at this more closely as we get into chapter 14. But I just want to say, you could hardly ask for any more plain language than that, right? I mean, what, is, what are tongues for? They're for those who don't believe. So here's the question. There's that prediction, and that's from Isaiah 28. There's that prediction that tongues would be given as a sign. For unbelieving Jews, so does it fulfill the predicted purpose of the gift of tongues? Then, as Paul uses it, if you look at the synagogue uh, application, I, I think it does. The gift of tongues is a sign, a sign to whom? A sign to unbelieving Jews. So, as Paul would obviously follow his own instruction to the church, so he's given the church instruction in First Corinthians fourteen. Paul's obviously not going to violate the instruction he's given to the church by going and doing and speaking in tongues in some other in some other. Uh, a setting besides this very setting as a sign to unbelievers. So when Paul says, then, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all, he's speaking, perhaps, of the temporary sign gift for unbelieving Jews. It it appears that application is very clear here, and Paul's regular habit of visiting the synagogue first would provide that best opportunity, then, for him to do that. It would be in a public place. It would be fulfilling what Isaiah said the reason for tongues would be, which is to unbelieving Jews, and he would have done it there in the synagogue as he had opportunity to speak. So when Paul says he did it, more than, uh, more than anyone else, we just have to take it then from the context of where Paul was on a regular basis in his missionary journeys to understand that that perhaps was how he was doing that and why he could say to the church, listen, regardless of how much you speak in tongues, I do it much more than you. And yet still he comes out and says in 1 Corinthians 13, 8, that they're going to cease on their own. Now, back to the question. If the gift of tongues isn't mentioned again in chapter 13, and it's going to end on its own, then when did that happen? And I think that we can make, as we kind of pull all this together, we can make some very informed decisions on how that occurred, okay? And as we did before, I think it's fair to include the other temporary sign gifts here as well, because they were for similar purposes. They were to verify the speaker, they were to verify the gospel, and the messenger, and all the kind of stuff we talked about before, things that were happening in the first century. And so, I'm going to give you what, as I told you before, a little bit different feel for the message. As 2 Timothy 3.16 says, you know, the word of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that's at the, at the, that men might be fully equipped for every service. So, once again, this is going to be just, just some doctrine. And so, we're going to look at this, and what, we, what I want to do is really start by asking a question Uh, that question, but really by looking at Paul's writings and what he said. So if the gift of tongues mentioned in chapter 13 is going to cease on their own, when did that happen? we can look at Paul's writings, I think we can make some pretty informed decisions. Now we have to start by setting up a timeline of Paul's ministry. Uh, Paul was saved in Acts chapter 9, we understand that, when the Lord appeared to him on the road to Damascus. Paul would go on to write uh, 13 letters in the New Testament, from the letter to Romans to the letter uh, to Philemon. When we remember that Paul is subject is the subject of at least half of the book of Acts, then as you put all that together, you realize that half of the twenty-seven books uh, in the New Testament are either about him, and that's the book of Acts, or written by him, and that's the thirteen letters. And so that's a large, uh, large margin there where we can take some of that and pull that all together and and kind of put it together correspond it to one another and get an idea of kind of what went on. So Paul's letters are arranged in our Bible, really, and you know this, this is uh, new, not new to you, I'm sure, but really by two principles. The letters to the churches are put first, the nine letters from Romans to 2 Thessalonians, and then the four letters written to individuals, that's 1 Timothy to Philemon. So letters are also arranged by length. So Romans is the longest, and it's first, and then the Corinthian letters, and of course, as we talked about before, there appear to have been perhaps four Corinthian letters, but the Lord only saw fit to preserve for us two, so the letters to the Roman is longest, Uh, the letters to the Corinthian letters are second, and then Galatians, etc. So, longer letters first, shorter ones later. So, that's basically how the New Testament was set up. So, Paul's writings are not in chronological order, they're put in there, and the church, early church, figured out that that's the way it would best be to represent Paul. So, the clues, though, that we mentioned last week about the sign when the sign gifts ceased, though, can be found when we look at the letters in the order that Paul wrote them. So that's what we're going to do now, kind of arrange them that way and see what was said. Now, the first six of Paul's letters can be fit into the book of Acts. And you know this, they correspond well. We can read Acts, and then read Paul's letters, and we can see where Paul was when he wrote the letters. Okay. So, for example, from Acts 9 through Acts 28... We read of the early ministry and the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. And we find that then during these years, he wrote six of his 13 letters. The order of the first six books is this. Galatians, that's Acts 14. So you can kind of look at Acts as it unfolds, and you can look and see where Paul wrote the books, and you can see. So Galatians, Acts 14. First, first and second Thessalonians, Acts 18. Uh, first and second Corinthians, that's Acts 19 and Acts 20. And then Romans is Acts 20. So In Acts 21, then, Paul is arrested and he remained a prisoner in some respects by his own choice, right? Because he kept saying, you know, I want to see Caesar. He's like, he just stays because the Lord has given him an opportunity to witness to those who are uh, those in leadership. And he's going to go to Caesar. He's going to witness there in Rome. So then Paul's arrested. He remains a prisoner and he travels uh, to Rome from chapter 21 to 28 and beyond. So after the end of the book of Acts, while he's still a prisoner... Uh, now in Rome, Paul write, wrote four letters. That's the prison epistles. So that would have be been Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians. And we know that because in each of those letters, Paul mentions what? He says, I write to you in chains. So we, we have a pretty good idea that he's in prison or under house arrest, at least that first time, uh, not as strict, if you will, in prison uh, as we would think about it, but perhaps in house arrest with a soldier there, but able to be ministered to uh, by those who knew him. So, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, Philippians. Those are the prison epistles. Now, we know that Paul was released from this approximately two-year imprisonment and continued his ministry over a few years after that. Now, during that time, he wrote the three letters that we know as the pastoral epistles. So, 1 Timothy, that's to Pastor Timothy, and Titus uh, to Pastor Titus. So, Paul was rearrested then at the end. I'm just kind of making a short history of this. Okay, we could go through a bunch of stuff, but I don't want your eyes to glaze over. But he, he was rearrested at the end of that short ministry... And at the end of his life, he's once again in prison. And this time, as you read uh, 2 Timothy, you realize that he is anticipating his death as a martyr. And he writes his last letter, and that's to 2 Timothy. So, 13 letters written by the Apostle Paul, in the order which he wrote them, during the book of Acts, 6 letters, letter number 1, Galatians, letter 2 and 3, the Thessalonian letters, letter 4 and 5, Corinthian letters, letter 6, the Roman letters. Now, in these first 6 letters, all written during the period covered by the book of Acts, it's important to point this out we find that the sign gifts were operating in all the churches. All through the book of Acts, we read of tongues, the gift of prophecy, the gift of healing. For example, tongues and prophecy, and when we talk about prophecy there, we're talking about predictive prophecy, uh, things that weren't previously known but are being made known by a prophet. Acts 19.6, the gift of prophecy, Acts 21.10-14, the gift of healing in Acts 19, 11 through 12, so you know, 28, 8, and 9. And you can read through there, and I'm just kind of giving you the high points. But basically this, all through the book of Acts, we read about these sign gifts. The temporary sign gifts are in operation in the churches. And in the letters to the churches, we read of the gifts operating in the churches that Paul founded. And so these ones that correspond with the book of Acts, uh, that would be Galatians 3, 5, and 1 Thessalonians five twenty and 1 Corinthians 12, and 13, and 14, the ones we're studying now, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Romans 12, 6. All these letters, then, very important, beloved, we read about the temporary sign gifts in operation right through the end of the book of Acts. So, not only are they operating in Acts, we see them in the churches, the epistle to the churches, then, or the acts of the churches, we see those sign gifts operating. And that's important. But again, I think it's important to point out that during this time, in the book of Acts, during Paul's missionary journeys, Because we get to 1 Corinthians, right? And what does does Paul reveal that the Lord has said to him is that the sign gifts were going to cease. So we're actually in a church planted by Paul that would correspond with the book of Acts. And in the middle of that correspondence, he says that the Lord has revealed to him that the sign gifts will come to an end, particularly that tongues would cease at some time in the future. So, that's the passage we're studying now. Gifts operational all through the book of Acts. Uh, for the biblical reasons we've pointed out now, don't, don't lose sight of that, they were operational in the book of Acts for the biblical reasons of a sign and verifications. So ver- verifying the minister, verifying the message, verifying that the Gentiles were coming into the church, all those things it verified. Just like we saw it was going to, that's what it was doing. And they're mentioned in the letters written during that time to the churches. But the sign gifts are going to come to a close, tongues particularly, at some time in the future, they're going to come and bring an end to themselves, so I think you can see then, that's very just very straightforward. Now, after we get to the end of the book of Acts, there's seven more letters. So, four prison epistles, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians. And then the three pastoral epistles, that's Titus and 1st and 2nd Timothy. So, his return to the prison epistles now. And the four letters written shortly after the end of the book of Acts, while Paul's a prisoner in Rome, that's Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians. Now mark this, beloved, okay? There doesn't appear to be any word about tongues or miracle gifts or healing. So as Paul now is in prison, he's writing to the churches. The book of Acts, if if you will, that corresponds with the churches has come to a close. Paul is in Rome. Acts would have come to a close as Paul goes to Rome. And here's the thing. There doesn't appear to be any word about tongues or the miracle gifts or healing. Even where, now catch this, even where, surprisingly, we might expect to see it. So it's really counterintuitive that Paul doesn't mention it at all. We expect for him to mention it. I mean, if they continued, why wouldn't he bring them up? Particularly in the case, as we see Paul talk about being filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18. He has nothing to say about tongues. Now, Epaphroditus, who fell seriously ill during this time in Philippians 2.25-30, and you remember that. Paul no longer had the gift of healing. He was no longer able to heal as he did, only just a few years earlier in Acts 28.9. So it appears that the sign gifts were no longer operating at the time Paul wrote the prison epistles. And similarly, as we look at the pastoral epistles, and I think this is even more significant, we don't appear to see any word about the miracle gifts or tongues or healing. And again, even where it would seem that he would mention them, particularly when Paul gives Timothy and Titus instructions regarding the choice of men to be elders in the church. Think about it, beloved. Paul says nothing about the desirability of these men to have a, uh, have a gift such as predictive prophecy or healing. He doesn't say anything about sign gifts, that these men should be able to do some certain thing, speak in tongues. He doesn't say anything about that. He doesn't say they should show forth the signs of the apostle. And that would seem obvious, right? If, if the apostleship continued, wouldn't he say, as you're choosing elders in the church, look for the signs of an apostle? And those would be, of course the sign gifts that would be made manifest in Paul's life and those other apostles who did those verifying works early in Acts. But he doesn't see, we don't see any of that. If you look at Titus 1, 6-9, 1 Timothy 3, 1-10, those areas where he said these, are what you look, these things are what you look for of men who are going to lead the church. You don't see anything mentioned about any of those sign gifts or look for these signs. It's nice to have a healer. You know, if you're looking for a church leader, it would be great if he could heal because that's super helpful in the church, right? I mean, if somebody's sick, just come on up and he lays hands on them. We don't see any of that, see? Think about this. Timothy had a stomach problem. Paul doesn't tell him that, you know, he's going to send him a cloth or anointing oil that his shadow fell on that we see just a few years before, right? Or to seek out a person with a gift of healing to heal him. He doesn't tell Timothy go find a healer in the church. He'll put his hands on you and heal you. They don't see that. And we know that that wasn't the purpose for those sign gifts anyway, was it? Just to kind of tie it back into what we've been looking at. Purpose for those sign gifts were a sign that the Gentiles had, been, had come into the church. They were a sign that uh, Jews had rejected Christ. They were verification that the message was true, that the messenger was true. So the sign gift for healing wasn't made so that everybody who was sick in the church could come on up and, and, you know, you could just put your hands on them and they would be healed. Before Paul's arrested the second time and taken to Rome, he says in 2 Timothy 4.20, Trophimus, now catch this, Trophimus, I left sick in Miletus. In other words... Paul's with Trophimus, and he can't heal him. Not just separated from Timothy by a number of miles. Timothy's in Ephesus, says, hey, you know, drink uh, a little bit of uh, you know, watered-down wine for your stomach, sake, and not just water only, so that you can be healed, or so you can feel better. He, he, and he doesn't say, hey, go find a healer in the church. Just tells Timothy perhaps what will help him. But Paul says, listen, I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Paul's with him and couldn't heal him. So it's important to note, then... As we look at 1 Corinthians 13.8, when Paul says that tongues will cease on its own, that what Paul could do in Acts 28, he could no longer do in Philippians or 1 and 2 Timothy. So, catch this. Now, just put this in perspective. Paul shipwrecked on the Isle of Malta. Remember? Acts 28.9. Paul shipwrecked on the Isle of Malta. And the biblical narrative tells us that he could heal everybody... On the Isle of Malta. He's bitten by a viper on his hand, and he's not affected. And after that, the Isle of Malta, they brought all their sick to Paul, and he healed them. So, in Acts 28, Paul could heal everybody on the Isle of Malta. But he couldn't heal any of his closest co-workers, Timothy, Epaphroditus, Trophimus, after the close of the book of Acts. So you get, Paul says, okay, prophecy and knowledge there, something's going to come along and cause them to cease. But tongues, he says, are going to cease on their own. And then we look at these later writings of Paul when it seems that it would be natural for Paul to mention that these sign gifts are still functioning. We don't see any comment about them whatsoever. See? And then I, want to, I just want to throw this in as an additional note. Even in the book of James, beloved, perhaps the earliest New Testament book written. Now here's an established church in Jerusalem where the sign gifts would not be needed for their original purpose, remember? Remember? to verify the messenger, to verify the message uh, as a sign to the unbelieving Jews. It wouldn't be needed anymore inside the church, okay, in their original context. James says this about healing. James 5.14, he says this. Is any among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who's sick, and the Lord will raise him up if he's committed sins, they'll be forgiven him. Verse 16, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Now, once again, it's impossible to be categorical, but it appears that this passage in context, and as we apply it here at Berean, has to do with sickness in relation to what? To sinfulness. I mean, That's, that's obviously in the context. It says, And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who's sick, and the Lord will raise him up, if he's committed sins, they'll be forgiven him. So there's a sickness connected with sinfulness. Now, not all sickness is connected with sinfulness. Some sickness is brought on by the Lord to test us. Some is brought on the Lord to perfect us. Some is just brought on. It's here because we're made of clay and we're and we're flawed. And, and the Lord gives we have an opportunity then to go through it, or the Lord can heal us if He wishes to. But here we've got this. We've got sickness. Okay. Obviously, uh, He doesn't say go to the healer. And, you'll, and that sign, gift, and healing will be performed on you. He just says, Listen, go and ask. You're confessing your sins to one another, and you're asking the Lord to uh, forgive you, and the effective prayer of a righteous man can avail much. So here's, here's the thing the message is already verified in the church here in Jerusalem. This is an established church now. The messengers are all very verified. We see the change that's come on. Jews have come into the church. The Holy Spirit's manifested there. They're growing in their faith, They're growing in their love. They're ministering to one another, all that kind of stuff. The church is established. James doesn't tell them to find a healer. He tells them to pray or have the elders of the church pray over them. Again, in this, in this sickness related, in, in the sickness related to sin. So, now the question comes up. So, as we see the two, as we see the two questions that we can answer, you know, is are the gifts like the gifts they were in the first century? Uh, no. And are they being used the same way in the first century? They're not. And so we see that, and then we see how Paul's writings are arranged then chronologically, and we see as he moves out of the book of Acts, and during the time of the book of Acts, to the church in Corinth, says the sign gifts will, or the tongues will, cease on their own. And We have all of that then, and then we see still today, people saying that the sign gifts are for today even though we see very clearly, and we haven't talked about what actually went on in church history, what occurred, even 400 years after the writing of the New Testament, where you have some of the church fathers saying that these sign gifts have been done for so long, we don't even know how they really functioned in the church. And so, you see all of that kind of stuff, and then the question comes up then, from time to time, and perhaps it's in your heart as well, many Christians today have an experience that they think is the spiritual gifts of tongues. And every time I talk about this, people come up, so what's going on? So I'm just going to answer it as I believe, I think the scripture would indicate, uh, would be uh, the correct answer. So many believers perhaps have have believed that they've experienced the spiritual gift of tongues. And we're going to talk about it more in chapter 14. But after studying the temporary sign gifts and their purpose and their use, so for verification and for a sign, and our passage here concerning the cessation of gifts of tongues, they ask, you know, so if I've experienced sign gifts, you know, what's going on, and what should I do now? Or I know people who are in uh, the charismatic movement, and they believe sign gifts are for today. Even though we see, I mean, without being dogmatic about it, we see very clear indication of what has actually occurred with the sign gifts. What should I do now? Now, there are several possible explanations for the experience. It may certainly have been a learned behavior, perhaps for you. It certainly could be a learned behavior in the modern church today. In other words, you actually go to a class, or you have someone mentor you to show you how to speak in tongues, which again violates some of those principles we saw earlier. Is that how the sign gift worked in the first century? It it is not. If it's a if it's a spirit empowered gift, then do you need somebody to teach you how to do it? And the answer, of course, to that is no. It may here's the and here's the thing. It may even feel like a spiritual experience, because in that context, wherever it is, it may feel very spiritual. And here's, here's a very important thing, which I, I, I emphasize a number of times. It may be the work of deceiving spirits. And I think that's very likely. Just like, And the reason why I say that is that is exactly what was going on in the Corinthian church. That was the reason for the writing of Paul to begin with. Hey, there's a bunch of weird stuff going on in our church. And is this spiritual? And, and are these people spiritual? And is this the work of the Holy Spirit? And so he's, they're asking Paul these questions, which prompts his response here. And so, certainly a learned behavior, I think, may even feel like a spiritual experience, but it may also be the work of deceiving spirits, because that was the false gift of ecstatic speech in the first century, which still goes on today, which is just a jumble of words that don't mean anything, but are supposedly the gift of tongues. There's a number of studies that have gone out, of guys who've gone and done their dissertation on this very thing. Sampled it all through churches throughout the world, where supposedly it's going on, and then he analyzes everything that's been said, and he finds out that it's just all nothing. It's not any kind of speech at all. And so, here's the thing. The false gift of ecstatic speech was in the early church. It certainly was the work of deceiving spirits. It was a carryover, at that point, from paganism, because that's what happened in the idols, in temples, but here's the thing. What it appears that it is not, it is not the spiritual gift of tongues. It could be a learned behavior. It could feel like a spiritual experience. It could be the work of deceiving spirits. But what it isn't is, I think we can, we can pretty much, with a, with a lot of, a lot of uh, understanding here and, and being very secure in this understanding, is that it's not the spiritual gift of tongues. And so the biblical answer then, and that's what's going on, so the biblical answer then to what you should do is, you should stop speaking in a tongue, because that's not from the Holy Spirit. And that statement can cause some strife, and it can cause some relief, both. Because many have been taught that they must speak in tongues to prove they're saved, or truly spiritual, or as we saw, is fallaciously taught, to show that they have been baptized by the Holy Spirit. Now, we looked at that false doctrine all, maybe a month ago. So, you can go back and check on that, and, wh- and why that's important to understand, that there is no... We don't see any command to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And so there's a number of ways that that comes to bear, but it may cause a lot of relief because people are told that in order to be spiritual you must speak in tongues and to show that you've been baptized by the Holy Spirit. So it's a lot of uh, disillusionment then inside that uh, the modern charismatic church because some people just can't do it, even if they've been taught. Or if they've been taught, they, they just think this is this can't be true. How is this true if somebody has to teach me and this nobody's telling me what I'm saying and how is this edifying? So the freedom of sound doctrine, then, as we looked at today, that's a relief to some. But it can cause some strife as well. And so Paul gives some instruction. Again, we're going to look at this more in depth as we get more into this, uh, into chapter 14. But Paul gives some instruction to the prophets in Corinth that's very pertinent to this if it's causing some strife. Here's what he says. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, about what's going on inside the Corinthian church every time they would meet. It's just this big... A big mess. And everybody standing up and saying, I got a word for you, I got a word for you, I got a word for you, and, you know. People standing up and speaking in ecstatic speech and nobody knows what they're saying. And it's just a big mess. This is like this has got to stop. This is not how the Lord designed the church to work. And so he says this. He says this. If anyone speaks in a tongue, now this is now keep in mind, where are we in time period in context? This is still in the time of Acts, okay? Tongues hasn't ceased on its own yet. In fact, he just got through saying, first Corinthians 13:8 tongues will cease on its own, but it is in the context of a future, and it's coming up. And we can see, as we looked at our study today, when that actually probably occurred. So, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. So, Paul just gives some ground rules. As this tongue, as the gift of tongues continues until it ceases on its own, there's the ground rules. You've got two at the most three, and each in turn, so nobody's standing up and doing it at the same time someone else is doing it. It's just this big babble going on all throughout the church. Okay. So, two or the most three, and one must interpret. So, this has got to be a real language. Somebody's got to recognize it, so they can tell the church what it is. And then he says in verse 28, he says, but if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent. And so, if, there's some, if it causes some strife, just understand, listen... This is Paul's instruction to the church. If you're standing up and you're saying something that you think is tongues, you've got no interpreter, then you have to be quiet. You're not allowed to even say it. He must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. So if you're going to do it, just do it quietly. Speak to yourself. Speak to the Lord. And he says, let two or three prophets speak. So he moves on to prophecy. And once again, still in the book of Acts, you could have had mixed in with reiteration of God's word. You could have mixed in, actually foretelling of what was going to go on. We saw that in Acts. Okay, so it could happen still in this time period. We, I think the, the manifestation of the gift now is really reiteration, which as we looked at before, even in the Old Testament, that is the majority of what went on even with the prophets. It was reiteration of what God had already said to the people and not a huge amount of new revelation that would have been brand new from the church. And even with Paul, who certainly would have had the gift of Telling something the Lord had not said yet. And Paul indicates that as he writes. This is from the Lord. Paul says, listen. Let two or three prophets speak. And so kind of the same rules apply. And let the others pass judgment. In other words, listen to what they say. And make sure it aligns with what you already know God has revealed. And what we see in the written letters that they had at that point. If it doesn't line up with that, then it's no good. Okay? But... If a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. In other words, once you've spoken, you're all done. So you don't get to stand up again and have a rebuttal and you're going back and forth or whatever. Once you've said what you think the Lord wants you to say, then you're all done. Verse 31, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. As long as you're listening, we saw the earlier qualification. You're listening to what they say and judging it by what we already know from the Lord. Okay, So that's what he's telling the church to do. You can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. Verse 32, And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. In other words, if you're prophesying, then the other prophets are going to know what you're saying is true, whether what you're saying is true or not. You don't get to just kind of go off on your own and freelance and just say, Okay, this is a whole bunch of new stuff, and here's what I'm going to give you. So, during the time period then, before the sign gifts ended that we looked at just a few moments ago, Paul addresses the church and he gives very specific instructions on the use of this sign gift so that he can say just a few verses later to those who disagree, 1 Corinthians 14, 36, he says this. So he's got some strife. You're telling people that they can't do what they've been doing and now they're not going to look so important in the church anymore and they've got the gift of tongues, they think, and they're standing up and they have this ecstatic speech and nobody's interpreting. Paul says, that can't happen anymore. If you're going to have the gift of tongues, one, two, at the most three, and somebody's interpreting. Otherwise, be quiet and talk to yourself. So you got some strife going on. Some's a relief. Some are relieved. People who wrote to Paul and said, is this spiritual? What do you think they are? They're super relieved. They're like, okay, now we have some rules governing this. Now we can tell if somebody's spiritual. They're going to obey what Paul says. And then Paul says this. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth? And the answer to that is... No, this is a brand new church, a brand new island of believers in the midst of pagan uh, culture. Okay? This is not where uh, the Word of God first went forth. Or has it come to you only? In other words, can you just do what you want? Is it up to you to figure out what the Holy Spirit wants you to do? You can just do whatever the Spirit wants. The Spirit has the right to do it. And I can just do whatever the Spirit tells me to do? No. It didn't come to you only, Paul says. If anyone thinks he's a prophet, or let's just get a draw a bigger fence around it, or spiritual... So once again, we're referring right back to 1 Corinthians 12.1 and following, where he's just saying, how do we know if somebody's spiritual? Okay, if you think you're a prophet or you think you're spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's command. So it just really backs him right into a corner, doesn't it? If you think you're really spiritual, and if you think you're a prophet, then you're going to recognize that I just gave you the word of the Lord as it concerns what goes on in the church. Then he says, but if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and don't forbid to speak in tongues. And he didn't, did he? Because we're still in the time of Acts, and that gift was still active, and he gave them some very specific instructions regulating the use of the gift inside the church, didn't he? And we know what the gifts were for, and we can see in the context of the New Testament how they were used. And then he says, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. And Paul has set out that order, the spiritual prerogative from the Holy Spirit, as to how the church is supposed to function. So as we move then into the modern day, then it's pertinent to ask, beloved, all of us it's pertinent to ask, am I having an experience that I can reasonably see from the scriptures isn't from the Lord? And if that's the case, and the answer is yes, then the answer should be the same as the one Paul gave as instruction for those who were doing things in the Corinthian church that were of the Holy Spirit. And that is, you have to keep silent. See? And of course, when you think about some things that you see on religious TV, of the supposed sign gifts and healing services and miracles and all of that, just remember that Jesus warned us that looks may be deceiving. Okay? Paul said in Matthew 7.15, he said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing so they appear to be what? Brothers and sisters in Christ. So they appear to be, because that's how we're referred to as sheep. So they appear to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So there's a whole other motivation going on inside, but on the outside they appear to be a certain way. You'll know them by their fruit. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? And what fruit is that, beloved? It certainly could be the fruit of the Spirit that's absent from them. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. It could also be the fruit of actions that we're talking about, so we're kind of seeing the outcome of life. So whoever that person is saying that these things should be done, these false prophets the outcome of their life then is visible, the fruit of their life and how they live and the things that are done outside. Is there a good reputation among men and all the things that are qualifications for those who lead the church, as we see in 1 Timothy 3. So it could be the fruit of the Spirit. It could be the fruit of their actions. But there are a lot of false teachers out there. And Jesus went on to say something very relevant for our study. Not only are looks deceiving, but experiences can be deceiving as well. In Matthew seven twenty-two, we see this. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? So what's going on there, beloved? That's the gifts, that's the sign gifts, right? That's what, we understand that, don't we? Many miracles and prophesying in, in the name of Jesus and in his name they're casting out demons and doing all these things. And I don't think that's a, it's an exhaustive list of the things that the false prophets are doing. It's just an example of perhaps what's being done in the name of The Lord. Then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, here's the thing. They really had these experiences. And they looked like they were prophesying. And they looked like they were casting out demons in Jesus' name. And they looked like they could perform many miracles. And maybe they were some miracles done in the power of the deceiver, perhaps. But the language tells us that back when they were doing these things... Jesus never knew them. So they weren't calling on him to do it, and he wasn't part of that service. And so at this future date then of judgment, they say, hey, we did all these miracles in your name. We cast out demons, and we prophesied and all that. Jesus said, listen, while you were doing it, I didn't know you. I don't know you now. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You didn't follow what I said. You're not doing what I told you to do. You're doing what you wanted to do. You really were like those that said, you know, the word of God Went forth to me, you know. It's come to me only, and or I can do whatever the Holy Spirit tells me to do, because he can do whatever he wants in the church. See. So what we want to do, and we're gonna wrap up because we've got a great missions report coming up. So what we want to do is base our faith and actions then on what the Word of God says, desiring to understand what it means by what it says, and then allowing that understanding to direct our actions, see. And we're out of time, and I, I wanted to get to the last couple of verses there, and I told you that I would, so my my fault for leading you astray today. But the, the thing about it is, um, I think this was important to go through. I think it's important as we build on our understanding of the way uh, the Holy Spirit works in the modern-day church. And many of you have relatives, perhaps, who are in the charismatic movement. You may have uh, friends of yours who are there. Maybe you came from there, and you wonder why you don't see those types of things in the majority churches or, or, and you don't see it here and you wonder what's going on or maybe you weren't able to do it like other people you saw doing it and, and perhaps you felt like you were, uh, you know, you didn't have the gifts that other people had or you weren't a spiritual as people had. I think it's important to clarify a lot of those kinds of things, okay? And, and so that's why we went through it. So I think you can kind of build on and create a foundation. that, As we wrap up then in chapter 13 where Paul talks about prophecy and knowledge, that are going to end when the perfect comes, which is what we're going to talk about next time, what that perfect thing is, uh, then I think it's important as we come into that, you have a very firm foundation on why uh, we teach what we teach and why that appears to be the case as we look through church history, as we look through the writings of Paul, as we look through the questions that apply to, that you can ask about the way the sign gifts were used then and used now and uh, and their function. So that's why we went through that. So I hope that was a blessing to you and an encouragement. If you got more questions about that, of course, there was much more we could have covered But we didn't have time to do it, so I'd be glad to answer questions for you if you have any. Next week, we have a missions moment here coming up, a report from a summer trip, which I'm looking forward to hearing. And then next week, we have Bill and Darlene Sanders, longtime missionaries with Transworld Radio. They are a huge blessing to us and the ministry that they've had in Transworld Radio over the years and the way Transworld Radio has changed and where they're reaching hundreds of millions of people, which we could not reach. Uh, we couldn't even go into the countries to be missionaries. Uh, they are reaching those folks. It's just incredible. You're going to love that. And next week is our annual men's campout and retreat, and Jim will be bringing the message here, uh, Jim Ferguson, and I'll be bringing the message to men on Sunday of October 9th. And so when we return from that, Lord willing, we'll finish out our, our, chap- our study of the 13th chapter and, uh, with those wonderful breaks and, and move into Chapter 14. All right, let's bow and be dismissed in prayer as it is our desire to really commit our way to the Lord. Lord, we thank you today for our time in the Word. Uh, I think we, we get the picture of what you have to say about all of this, and even our just our samples of First Corinthians 14, as we see Paul give the priorities of the Spirit in the function of the Church. The conduct of the Church really is our focus here as we moved into, really, chapter 11. As we looked at how Paul wants the communion to be functioning, and he moves on into spiritual gifts, and all of that has to do with how we work in the church with one another. So, Father, I pray that you will just give us understanding, particularly in this very important area where much, uh, the deceiver has created much disillusionment, many questions, and a lot of conflict and resistance and all of that. Father, just give us your understanding, your peace. Help us in grace to be able to explain clearly why we believe what we believe and perhaps use us to provide some clarity and encouragement and some proper instruction to those who have been trapped, perhaps, by um, false teaching. And we give you praise today, and we thank you. We thank you for our guests who are here, Father, and uh, the blessing your word is to all of us as we read it. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen.